are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming, of, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Been fighting a cough all week, so if there's a coughing fit that breaks out while I'm preaching to you, just bear with me. We'll get through it. Take a swig of a communion cup, and we'll be good to go. Um, so uh, this morning uh, we are starting a new sermon series um, called Reset. This morning it's going to take us through the end of July, and I'm calling this Reset: Getting Back to the Basics of Following Jesus. Um, really, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is COVID has obviously uh, been a massive disruption in the life of churches all over the world. Still in some places in our world, churches are still struggling to meet, to gather together, to get their members back, to survive financially. I read an article last week that in America, one in five churches are facing permanent closure because of complications due to COVID, which is crazy. It's 20% of churches throughout our country. We've all walked through this kind of shared trauma together in different ways over the last two years, and we're still kind of walking through it as well and still feeling the effects of it, you know, corporately as a body, maybe you individually or your families are feeling the effects of COVID, of loss. And during this time of of this COVID season, due to kind of a variety of reasons, some legit, some not so legit, churches and individuals across our world, uh, myself included, have slipped into some bad habits just developed some bad habits. And these bad habits that have developed have kind of clouded our eyes um, into what it really truly means to follow Christ. Um, Myself personally, just speaking, opening up the window a little bit, I've gotten lazy over the last two years in a variety of ways um, in following Christ. And so I would love for us individually and corporately to come back to the board and just hit reset on some things, what it means to follow Christ. So COVID is the first massive reason globally, you know, as to why we probably need to hit the reset button. Um, the second reason more pertains to this faith family, Emmanuel Church. You have been through so much the last two years. COVID, moving locations in the middle of COVID, a pastor transition, other micro changes along the way. And here I come along. 
this new guy who most of you know nothing about me, and everything now may feel a little different than it did two years ago. There are people not in this room right now that were here two years ago. There's people that were not here two years ago that are here right now for a variety of reasons. Some of us uh, have, have walked through a lot uh, with this church over the last couple of years. And there's so much gospel fruit happening at Emmanuel right now that has been happening in your existence, particularly as you've suffered well together through the last couple of years. And I'm so grateful that I get to hear those stories on a regular basis as I sit down with y'all and meet with y'all and hear about what God is doing in your lives. But here's the deal. My, my goal in this sermon series is not necessarily to launch anything new. If you're looking for anything massive, like massive changes to come from Emmanuel Church, you're going to be greatly disappointed. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like change to begin with. Uh, that's another story for another day. But my goal in this sermon series is not to start something new, but to call us back to something we've already known that we may have just forgotten along the way. So I, I don't want to blow up the church and start over. There's no reason for that. God is doing great things among you and has been doing great things among you. And I get to benefit from that as a new person. So I'm grateful for that. But I want to remind us and I want to remind myself of who Christ is and who he has called us to be as followers of Jesus. And I pray by looking at the gospel and the truth of God's word that we will be built up, that we will be convicted that we will be encouraged, that we will be challenged. And I pray that some of us awaken from our COVID slumber, that the Holy Spirit brings new life into our souls, and that we as a church fall back on God's grace in those places where we have failed and rejoice in those places where we have flourished. So let's just pause there and let's just pray. Let's just pray to that end before we jump into our sermon for this morning. Father, I am so grateful for these men and women in this room. I am so grateful for how they have, by your grace, through your spirit, navigated uncharted waters as a church, as believers. I've seen so much gospel unity across this church in my short 11 weeks of being here that it is so encouraging to me. But I acknowledge, we acknowledge, Father, that for many of us, myself as well, we have fallen into some bad habits, some bad patterns. And I just pray, Father, that you are merciful towards us. I pray, Father, that you move in us through your spirit, that you fill us up again. And I pray for our time now, that as we look at this beautiful text in Ephesians chapter 2, that the grace and the mercy of Christ are on display in spite of who we were, and that we bring great glory to your name in our hearing of your word this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan of nostalgia. Um, maybe you're not. I am. Uh, certain things in my life just take me back to the good old days. Uh, mountains, the autumn season, when the season starts to change, holidays. Like I love all these things because of the feelings that are aroused in me, the memories I have. You know, nostalgia is kind of wanting to be swept away by thoughts of days gone by, Right? kind of produces in you uh, desires for the good old days. If we just got back to where we were, if it was just this way, then things would be better. I know I'm getting older when I start many of my conversations with my kids. of like, I remember back when I was your age. Um, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and I think stoking the fires of nostalgia uh, are a big reason why companies like Disney are so successful. I mean, if we took a step back 
and just thought about Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Paris, Disney whatever, if you just take a step back and objectively think about Disney World, I mean, Disney World's literally a glorified theme park with not a lot of great rides, all right? Um, Christine is going to hate me for saying this. I'm honestly glad my kids aren't in the room. I apologize if yours are, but it's true. There are very few thrill rides, some rides at least 40 years old with songs that get stuck in your head forever. It's hot. It smells like hot asphalt different places in the park. It's expensive. I did some research this week and did some math. A standard Disney World park ticket right now costs, an av- it costs $109 a day per person to get in the park just to get through the gate and add on top of that all the food you're buying and all the ponchos you got to buy because it's Florida and it rains randomly you know, throughout the day. And so I did some math, added some numbers, and the average cost right now for a family of four to travel to Europe for a week is about $5,500. The average cost right now for a family of four to go to Disney World, stay in the cheapest resort, is $5,700. So it costs less money right now in 2022 to go to Europe than to go to Orlando, Florida, to an amusement park. But people still pay for it. I still pay for it. People still pay thousands of dollars. They don masks outside in the heat of summer during COVID. They wait in line for hours sometimes to ride a not-so-good ride with limited dining and ride options at various times through COVID. They still pay for it. Why do they pay for it? Because the geniuses at Disney know they're not selling you tickets to an amusement park. They're not selling you 100-degree rainy weather They're not selling you overpriced food and hotels. What they're selling you is your childhood, right? They are selling you nostalgia. They are selling you the experience of watching your little kid weep as she meets Cinderella for the first time, remembering back to when you were a little kid and you watched Cinderella for the first time and you're just sitting there just crying like a baby watching your little girl meet this fake princess, you know, for the first time ever. Not that that's ever happened to me. Um, But nostalgia is a really powerful thing. It's a really powerful thing. But nostalgia is also a very deceptive thing, right? You know, when nostalgia is involved, we tend to take a, a revisionist approach to much of our past experience. You know, we tend to remember the good things as better than they actually were and ignore or block out the negative things that surrounded those good things. Nostalgia is like a fog that surrounds each of our historical lived experiences. We tend to do this, uh, just low-hanging fruit, we tend to do this with uh, our heroes in American history, oftentimes, do we not? We say things like, well, we just need to get back to Christian values this country was founded upon. And granted, many of our documents have Judeo-Christian thoughts running throughout them, but lest we forget... Many of our founding fathers were anything but solid Christians. They were deist slave owners. We forget that for the sake of nostalgia. Remembering things is better than they were. And this is true even in thinking about human nature. Now, some of us may think that human beings throughout history have been fundamentally good or well-intentioned with a few kind of bad apples sprinkled in. We have this idealistic picture of what humanity is capable of. And don't get me wrong, I mean, we have, human beings have accomplished some pretty incredible things, right? 
advances in medicine, technology, uses of resources to aid those in need, advances in education. These are all great things. But at the end of the day, power still corrupts. Hearts are still deceitful. And even well-intentioned human beings without Christ are still spiritually dead in their sins. This is how Paul starts Ephesians chapter 2. He doesn't paint an idealistic picture of the human race, but he gives in reality probably one of the most pessimistic takes on human nature found anywhere in the Bible. He condenses the first three chapters in the book of Romans down to three verses. But to quote John Stott, John Stott said, Paul first plums the depths of pessimism about man, but then he rises to the heights of optimism about God. So we're going to divide up these 10 verses in Ephesians 2 into five sections this morning. Five sections. There's a lot of notes this morning. If you're a note taker, jot it down. You might have to jot it down fast. You can go back and look at it later if you need to. But five sections. Five sections. Who we were, what God did, why God did it, how he did it, and how we live. All right? So who we were, what God did, why God did it, how he did it, and then how we live. All right? We'll come back to those throughout the sermon if you missed any. <clears throat> but a lot of notes, as I said. So let's go. Let's go. First, let's look at who we were. Who we were. Paul begins by talking about the past reality of believers. If you're a Christian in this room, this was your past. If you're not a Christian in this room, this is your present. This is who you are. So let's read verses 1 through 3 again. Let's just hear this description he lays out here. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So who were we before Christ? Well, first, we were dead. We were dead. This is the same spiritual death that's plagued humanity since Genesis chapter 3. We were dead. Well, what's the cause of our death? Verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's the death, this death, that is the result of sin. Spiritual death now, from birth, born into sin, physical death to come. The Greek word for sin here literally means to miss the mark. It's like God set up a bullseye, a target here, and he said, this is how I want you to live according to my desires and my character, my purposes for you and my holiness. Yet we did not just miss the bullseye, we missed the whole target. We probably actually shot in the wrong direction. We missed the target that bad. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark that God had laid out for us to hit. And the result is spiritual death. But lest we minimize sin to a bunch of do's and don'ts, let's make sure we're clear on exactly what is at the heart of sin. At the heart of sin are not just breaking a bunch of rules that God sets forth that are just arbitrary. No, the heart of sin is rebellion against our king. It's the king of the universe laying down the requirements of his citizens in order to dwell in his kingdom. And we have committed treason against him by looking at him in the face and pointing our finger and saying, no, I know a better way. I will do things my way. I will govern myself. I am the king or queen of my own kingdom, not you. And the result of this life 
This treason is death. So we're first dead in sin, all right? First dead in sin. But although we're dead in sin, lifeless pertaining to all things spiritual, we're dead in sin, yet we were walking, all right? That's what the language is here. We were dead, yet active. Lifeless, yet following. I mean, that's literally the definition of a zombie, right? I mean, these lifeless beings walking around, following whoever makes the loudest noise, right? Without any thought to what they're doing. And we weren't just walking on our own in death. No, but we were being led and guided by persons and entities in death. Now make no mistake, before Christ, we're not just passively drifting away. Marching to the beat of our own drum. Now, whether we know it or not, or knew it or not, we were being lured by the Pied Piper, frolicking along in our sin with no care in the world of our spiritual demise. So what were we following? Who were we following? What were we obeying? Well, first, we are followers of our culture. Followers of our culture. <clears throat> we are following the course of this world, verse 2 says. The language employed here is referencing an entire system of values that is contrary to God. It's humanity apart from God, constrained by earthbound motives, consistently telling you to dethrone the God of the Bible and put yourself on that throne. And don't be fooled, Emmanuel Church. This culture is seeking to entice you and to woo you and to allure you away from holiness and joy and life, away from God to put your hope in something else or someone else or another person or thing or idea. The culture consistently makes promises it cannot deliver to you. Cannot deliver. You know, one of the most potentially, um, one of the most potentially internally crippling things about being a pastor, just internally crippling, is thinking about the amount of time I get with you in a week. Or one of these elders or leaders in this church gets with you in a week. Compared to the amount of time the news gets with you, or social media gets with you, or cultural messaging gets with you on a weekly basis. You know, if I look solely to my own strength and ability to, uh, to pastor you, you know, according to my own time that I get to spend with you, the role of pastoring you in the world today would be utterly overwhelming. It would feel, it would feel futile. Like, what can I do in 35 minutes with you on a Sunday? when you're spending 167 hours of your week somewhere else. I mean, I battle that futility feeling every day. Every day. And although the temptation to give in to that is strong and great, the Lord always is gracious to me and reminds me that it's not about me. And so my response to that is I fall on my face and I pray for you every day. That's all I can do. I can pray for you. I can plead with you. I can pray for my family, pray for myself, plead with the Lord to produce in us the desires and appetites and affections for Christ that will drive you to him every single day of the week, not just 35 minutes on a Sunday. If you're looking for a sermon, a 35 to 40 minute sermon on a long day, if you're looking for that to be enough spiritual nourishment to get you through the week, you will not make it in the Christian life. You will not make it. So I pray, I pray for you every day that the Holy Spirit of God would draw you to himself. That he would give you insatiable appetites for the glory of Christ. 
that you spend every waking moment devoted to him and his glory and his kingdom. Paul says they're not just following the culture, though. He goes on. And he says, before Christ, we're also following the devil. The devil. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit now at work and the sons of disobedience. Verse 2. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 would call, the, we call Satan the god of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We have an enemy, Emmanuel. And before Christ plucked us from the depths of the pit, we were spiritually dead carcasses living in his kingdom. Do you know that? You ever thought about that? Colossians 2.13, when God saves us, he transfers us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. That implies that before Christ, we were living in the kingdom of Satan, kingdom of the devil. It's where we resided. And the prince of the kingdom of darkness is working. See that in the text? He's working. He's at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. I mean, John Owen, famous Puritan from the 1600s, he famously said, Now be killing sin or it will be killing you. Right? Peter himself writes in 1 Peter 5 8 that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's hiding in the reeds and the bulrushes, and just when you think it's calm, He's going to pounce out when you're vulnerable and he's going to seek to devour you. Before Christ, you didn't have to worry about that. You were his. You were in his kingdom. He is actively working and was actively working to keep you deceived, to keep you blind, to keep you from seeing the light of life found in Jesus Christ. So we were following, church, before Jesus, Christians, we were following, before we became Christians, the culture the devil, and then third, we were slaves to our passions. We're slaves to our passions. We were being ruled by our carnal desires. Now, this isn't just like sexual desires, which is what this word flesh means in a variety of other places in the New Testament. That's not what this means. But it's desires that are contrary to the desires of Christ. So things like anger, resentment, envy, rage, selfish ambition, any desires that rob us from life found in Christ. And then Paul puts the final nail in the coffin at the end of verse 3. It's like he's, it's like he's digging us in a grave, right? And we're dead already, I guess. So he's just piling the dirt on uh, in that grave. And he calls us children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were inherently in our nature from birth children of wrath. Not children of God. You don't start there. You're transferred. You're adopted to be a child of God. We start, every single one of us in this room started our lives as a child of wrath. Sons of disobedience, children of wrath. Literally, when we were born into this life, disobedience and wrath were our mom and our dad. You may be here and you may not be a Christian, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Um, you're like, man, this hellfire and brimstone guy. Um, you know, you may be thinking I'm just a crazy person, right, for believing this or communicating this to you, but I would be failing you as a communicator of God's word, if I did not tell you that you are not currently morally neutral, that you are not simply a bystander in spiritual matters that pertain nothing to you. No. No. You are spiritually dead in your sins. You are an active citizen in the kingdom of darkness. You are not a child of God, but a child of wrath. 
with no hope in your own power and strength and might and good and well-intentioned actions of ever digging yourself out of this grave. You are utterly hopeless without Christ. You're hopeless. We too, Christians in this room, we too at one time were utterly hopeless without Christ. But God... Two of the most flooring, beautiful, hope-inspiring words in the entirety of the Scriptures. But God. Well, what did God do? Second major point, what God did. Let's read verses 4 through 6 again together. <clears throat> but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. First thing of note here. First note. God's actions are always rooted in His person. God's actions are always rooted in His person. I mean, we just read some of the most pretty, some of the pretty damning verses about who we once were apart from Christ, right? God has every right to exercise His wrath, His just wrath and judgment upon every single human being throughout time and space for rebelling against him as king and creator. And he would be perfectly just in that. But that's not what Paul highlights here. Now Paul tells us three things about the nature of God, about who he is, that provide not wrath, but a remedy to our hopeless plight. And set against the backdrop of mankind without Christ... The sovereign actions of God take on an even greater significance and magnitude in our lives. So what is God like? Well, first, He's rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. This isn't pity. He's not scraping the bottom of the mercy barrel to find something for you. Not something He has to dig down into the depths of His being to manufacture for His jacked up people. No, he is wealthy in mercy. It's like Scrooge McDuck opened a massive vault. If God were Scrooge McDuck, and instead of gold coins, there's mountain and mountains and mountains of mercy. And the more we fathom our spiritual despair, the more and more we will fall on our faces in gratitude for his mercy towards us. He's merciful. Second, he's also great in love. He's great in love. His wealth of mercy is rooted in the magnitude of His love. That's what verse 4 says, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Now, love is the source from which His mercy flows. If there is anything we expect from the first three verses in this chapter, it's anything but love from God. But His disposition towards us who were dead is a love that drove Him to great length to make us alive. Namely, sending His Son to die a horrible death in our place on a cross, absorbing our deadness that we might have life. And then third, God is also generous in grace. He's generous in grace. By grace, you have been saved. You know, it's funny. Paul gets to grace. By grace, you have been saved. Literally in verse 8. It's almost like he couldn't wait to get to verse 8. So he kind of like had this spontaneous moment of, Praise for God's grace. And then he kind of pulls back a little bit. He's like, I'll get there. Let me follow my flow of thought. So we're going to pull back too. And we'll get to that in verse 8. Um, but he's generous in grace. 
So God's actions are rooted in His person. He is merciful, He's loving, and He's gracious. So if that is the bedrock of what He did, what did He do? What did God do? Well, He did three things in our text. And at the heart of these three actions is this truth. This truth. God's actions towards Christ have now been extended to us. God's actions towards Christ have now been extended to us. We're about to wade into some some theological waters that I think are glorious, and I I pray that the Spirit makes you think they're glorious too. So bear with me just a few minutes. But Paul is expounding here in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, this notion called union with Christ. If we're doing a study through Ephesians, which I'd love to do one day, we, I say that after every time I reference something, I realize that. Um, I'd love to preach the whole Bible with you. Um, there we go. We would have seen this idea of union with Christ all over chapter 1. But Paul's reiterating it here in chapter 2. But just to give you a definition of what I'm talking about, union with Christ refers to a believer's association with Christ by the Holy Spirit, where believers partake in Christ's saving benefits. All right? So in other words, let me... Put in other words here, we have been so linked to Christ through faith in Him and the power of the Spirit that whatever Christ experiences regarding victory and salvation, we too experience that. This is the whole concept of covenant in the Bible. We don't have time to, to do a just, I've run through covenants. I'd love, I'd love to do that. Um, but... but this is Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 5. If you remember Romans chapter 5, he lines up Adam, the old man, the fallen man, right? The head of the old covenant who transfers the death of the old covenant to everyone born in this life. And Jesus, the new man, the head of a new covenant who transfers the benefits of life to all those under him, Right? The benefits or curses upon the head of the covenant trickle down into the body of that covenant. All right? It's the whole 1 Corinthians 12 picture. Christ is the head of the church. We are the body. As goes the head, so goes the body. Okay? So Jesus Christ, the head of this new body, the church, this new entity, has all the benefits he experiences transferred down to be experienced by all those who are in him that he is attached to, he is united to, namely those that are in him. So what are those? Well, Paul names three in verses five and six. Three. First, God made us alive together with Christ. It's right there in verse five. All of this with and in language that's being used here with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, all that is talking about our union with Christ. We have spiritual life because Christ has spiritual life. Let's take it a step further. We will one day have physical life because Christ walked out of a grave with a real physical body. He's the first fruits. And as the head goes, so goes the body. All right? Not only that, but second, he's exalted us with Christ. He's exalted us with Christ. Verse 6, God has raised us up with him. Just as Christ has been raised and ascended to the Father, so we too, see it here, see it here, church. So we too have been raised up past tense. You're like, man, I'm living on the earth. I haven't been raised up to anything. Your, your, your guarantee 
of resurrection and exaltation with Jesus Christ is so set in stone that because of Christ, Paul can talk about it as if it's in the past tense. If Christ did it, you will do it. If Christ made it, you will make it. If Christ was exalted, you too, if you're in him, will be exalted. If Christ persevered, you too will persevere. All of those things are true of you, Christian, because you're in him. And he is the head, and we are the body. As goes the head, so goes the body. And the third thing God has secured for us in Christ is he has seated us beside Christ. Verse 6, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, past tense. Spiritually, we're already there. Physically, we will be there. Already, not yet. Now, let's not get confused and think that if we're seated beside Christ and we're going to be receiving worship you know, like he is. No, no. The language here carries with it this, this tone of victory. That we'll be seated with him in victory over the powers that once kept us in death and bondage. That they have been trampled under the feet of our King, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be seated beside him in conquest of all those things that used to dominate us. I mean, is this not incredible? Like, it's an amazing truth just to meditate on and sit with. I mean, you want assurance of salvation? Meditate on union with Christ. Meditate on that. Given who we were before Christ and who we are after Christ, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, John Calvin said, Humanity by virtue of Christ's conquest of sin and death and by his exaltation is lifted from the deepest hell to heaven itself. You kidding me right now? A rebel, a traitor to the king, and now I'm seated beside Jesus in the heavenly places. Are you kidding me right now? Why did he do it? Why? Why did God do it? It wasn't because of me. Why did he do it? Why did God choose to do this towards a rebellious people? Major point number three, why he did it. The reasons in verse seven, look at it. God did this so that, purpose clause, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or in other words... God saves us in Christ to display his grace and kindness to us for his glory forever. The intent of the church, the reason we exist as a church, and we're going to talk more about this next week, but the reason we exist is to put on display to the entire created order, physical and spiritual, the wisdom and love and mercy and kindness and greatness of God for all eternity. That's why it is so important that we treat each other like Christ has treated us. Because the church is God's exercise and display of his wisdom to the principalities and powers in the spiritual places. Ephesians 3.10. F.F. Bruce says it like this. He says, Throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. God will show us goodness and kindness forever to bring him great glory. More on that next week. So who we were, what God did, why he did it, fourth, how he did it. 
how he did it. God saved us, church, by virtue of his grace, through the means of faith, apart from works, so that if we boast, we only boast in Christ. By virtue of his grace, through the means of faith, apart from works, so that if we boast, we only boast in Christ. I think it's common for a Christian with a growing awareness of his or her sin to occasionally ask the question, why did God choose to save me? Me. A dim-witted, impatient, always going back to the same sin over and over, can't seem to get it right, anything right in my life. Why would God choose to save me? And the simple answer to that question, Christian, is this, because he wanted to. Because he desired to breathe new life into your dead yet walking corpses and make you alive together in Christ out of the sheer good pleasure of his heart. It was nothing you brought to the table. It was not your charisma. It was not your potential. It was not your status. It was not your good works. It wasn't what you could contribute. No. You literally brought nothing to the table of salvation except your sin and death. And God, in His sheer grace, gave you the ability to cry out to Him in desperate faith. You have no grounds of boasting. I have no grounds of boasting. We did nothing. He did it all. Everything. Start to finish. And what He started, He will finish. Philippians 1.6 And then lastly, lastly, how we live. Number five, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the next 13 weeks of our series, unpacking verse 10. What are those good works God has prepared for us, Emmanuel Church? What are those good works God has prepared for me, Austin Baker? What are those good works God has prepared for you? And how do we walk in them individually? How do we walk in them collectively as a body? But suffice to say at this point, two things, two things. One, we live by the desires of our new nature. We've been created in Christ Jesus. We we are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The old is gone, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you are brand new. New desires, new goals, new aims, new purposes. You're new. No longer centered on yourself, but you're centered on the glory of our King and building up His people. We've been newly created church for God's glory and for good works. Now, we didn't perform good works in order to be created anew. No, we were created new, and now we walk in good works. You messed up the order here of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You've messed up the gospel. If you start in verse 10, you've missed the whole thing. You start in verse 1 and work your way down to verse 10. Works are the outflow of a changed nature, not so that we earn God's favor. Our favor is, His favor is ours because of Christ. God's favor rests on Christ. We're in Him. His favor rests on us because you've been united to Him. And then second, where we once walked in the works of death, verse 2, we now walk in the works of life, verse 10. Walking bookends these 10 verses. The New Testament writers assumed that our lives would be marked by obedience and following our new king. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, 
I trusted Christ as my Savior, and later I trusted Him as Lord. Now it's a both and. All right? It's a together package. He saves us, and He becomes Lord immediately. So who are we following as we walk, Christian? Who are we following? Who is leading us? Are we being led by the world, the devil, and our own passions? Or are we truly being led by Christ? We're going to do some, a lot of self-reflection throughout this next 13 weeks. It's going to be painful some places. But praise God, He doesn't leave us in it. But He reminds us of His grace and His mercy. So may we walk and bring life to everyone we encounter as we follow Him in the days to come. Let's pray together. Father, may we never get calloused to the gospel. May we never get to a place where it no longer affects us, where we take it for granted, where our sin is treated more like a lackadaisical manner in making Your grace cheap in our lives. But may we live our lives, O oh God, by Your mercy and Your grace and the power of the Spirit. May we live our lives understanding that grace was costly. That grace cost You the death of Your Son and that which cost You much should not be cheap for us. But Lord, we will fail. None of us are perfect. But we praise You, O God, that You knew our failures past, present, and future when You sent Christ to the cross. That our failure does not catch You off guard. Our failure does not extinguish the depths of the mercy and grace that is in Your person. But You are rich in mercy. You're rich in mercy. You are great in love and You are generous in grace. Those things are who You are and they will never change. Thank you, Father, for your kindness towards us. Thank you, Father, for your kindness towards us, a kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. Thank you for Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.